0: The honor of this time again is certainly a great one and we're thankful for the presence of each and every one certainly, for our visitors and our membership alike. We're simply each no doubt excited that God has blessed us with the capability, the disposition of heart and mind that has allowed us to assemble on this Sunday afternoon. As we give thought to the marvelous message contained in those 66 books of the Bible, it is in fact in that we find the only hope that we can entertain for the hope that's certainly heaven beyond this life And as we study tonight from some extended passages in 1 Samuel, I would invite you again to turn with me to that noble Old Testament historical book as we seek to revisit some of the attributes of Saul's life and to use that to help ourselves to perhaps be stronger, more mature servants to our wonderful Heavenly Father. As we begin this particular study this evening, by way of very brief recollection, Our youngsters, as they prepare for the Bible Bowl, continue to study the first 24 chapters of that book. The book does have 31 chapters, so they'll not be held responsible at the Bible Bowl for the last several chapters of the book. But as we have come to this point tonight, already over halfway through the chapters of our study, we have been introduced to Eli, to Samuel, to the wickedness of Eli's sons. To, in fact, that interesting journey the Ark of the Covenant took as the children of Israel took it into battle and it was captured by the Philistines. We also have seen, didn't we, that that Ark was returned and the people made the request for a king. That request, in fact, was such a notable matter that it was held over them for quite some time and ultimately the God of heaven selected Saul as the first king. Ultimately, after his saving of Jabesh and Gilead, We noticed the people acclaimed him as king, and that brought us to the study of last Sunday evening. It was on that occasion that we saw an interesting decision by Saul. As the characteristics of battle almost came to the forefront, he made the decision to offer a sacrifice when he had no authority to do so. And in so doing, the God of heaven rebuked him for that, and we noticed that it was already stated that the kingdom would be taken from him. Tonight, we take up our next study in the 14th chapter of that book. And might I invite you to study with me tonight chapters 14 and 15 in the book of 1 Samuel. As we come to this particular set of chapters this evening, our approach will be similar to those that we have taken in the past and attempt first to at least overview the historical features of those two chapters and then to devote a few moments seeking to extract some lessons and thoughts that can motivate us to learn what we should from these wonderful Old Testament chapters. It still should be an important thought for all of us to remember that those things written aforetime were indeed written for our learning. It's not just trivia. It's not just a matter of some unimportant or insignificant variety of knowledge. It really is there, and there are lessons contained in it, and there are features therefrom that really can make a difference as you and I seek to apply more fully the teachings of the New Testament. Our saga tonight begins really in the opening part of the 13th chapter. In the sense that there, the son of Saul, one of the sons at least, whose name was Jonathan, he made an excursion and in fact attacked a Philistine garrison in Geba. And as the remainder of chapter 13 unfolded, we remember that the Philistines prepared for battle and they amassed a large set of troops at Michmash. Saul and the troops of Israel, of course, were very aware of that assemblage of the Philistines, and the Israelites were afraid. They were, in fact, greatly terrified. Many of them, in fact, made interesting movements to, to run, to hide, to flee. But we noticed that it was on that same episode and circumstance when Saul made his decision. Samuel delayed his coming, Saul wanted to make sure things were ready for the potential Philistine attack, and so he offered that sacrifice that he was not authorized to make. It was as chapter 13 closed that the Philistines made a threefold attack toward the particular land of Israel. That particular movement along the valley of Zeboam, along that area known as Beth-horon, and also along the area known as Orphra. At that scene, chapter number 13 closed, and that brings us to the situation tonight. I think as we ended that lesson, we wondered, will the battle now proceed? And if so, what will transpire? And so it is, to the 14th chapter we go. As the 14th chapter opens again, Jonathan takes center stage. We find that he and his armor-bearer made a rather secretive decision— they make the decision to actually go into Philistine territory, thinking that perhaps God would utilize them to actually save Israel, or at least do a significant deal of damage to the Philistine troops. As they proceed on that way, only the two of them against the large number of the Philistines, we notice an interesting set of events took place. First of all, as Jonathan and his armor-bearer came to the territory to the place where the Philistines were. It was Saul who, in fact Jonathan, who made an interesting statement. He depended on a sign from the God of heaven, and once they presented themselves to the Philistines, how the Philistines replied would be the guide as to how they would operate next. It turns out that the Philistines did reply in the way that indicated to Jonathan that God was with them, and so, they ended up slaying some 20 Philistines in a rather small territory or area. All that did, though, was cause a great deal of havoc and a great deal of confusion because the Philistines began to battle each other. The text actually says they beat one another down. The quaking and the trembling and the fear that came about with the coming of Jonathan and his armor bearer, God used that to provide a discomfiture to the nature of the Philistines, and they ultimately began to defeat themselves. At that particular point, we notice that Saul, his watchman made an observation. Saul's watchman, of course, was looking from a distance, and he saw that the Philistines were defeating themselves, and he saw that the tr- numbers of those troops were diminishing He relayed that news to Saul, and Saul was very much concerned and interested as to how that was taking place, and thus he ordered a census of the people. Who is missing and who is not here? Who might be responsible for this? As they numbered the children of Israel, they found two were missing, Jonathan and his armor-bearer. At that point, it was known, in essence, at least, who appeared to be responsible, and as the next verses relay to us, we notice some more details about the battle. The Philistines continued to fight one another, but we notice some descriptions about the children of Israel. Ultimately, Saul and his troops came to the location at Michmash where the Philistines were gathered, and as they proceeded also to engage in the battle, we find that the children of Israel were distressed. They were very faint. The reason was because of something many of us can identify with. They were very hungry. Saul had made an oath that early in that morning apparently. And as a part of that oath, he had said, Cursed be any man that tasteth any food until I be avenged of my enemies. And so it was that for the entire duration of that day, despite the fact they were fighting intensely, despite the fact these Philistines were well prepared militarily, we noticed the children of Israel had eaten nothing. As the particular battle proceeded, the distress and the faintness of them actually led us to what was perceived next. We notice that the children of Israel had the upper hand in the battle because God was with them. They proceeded, in fact, to defeat the Philistines in great numbers and in great order. That does bring us, though, to the next observation. As the children of Israel continued in that battle they in fact chased the Philistines into a region that was wooded. In this wooded area, honey was to be found rather naturally occurring, and it was in fact even said to be dropping. However, due to the oath that Saul had made, the troops by and large in Israel refused to take any of that honey that was so naturally provided except one person. Jonathan, you see, was unaware of the oath that his father had taken and made that morning. And thus, during the course of the coming into that area, he naturally took some of the honey and used it. And it says his appearance brightened, his countenance was lifted. It was a very good thing to him. At that point, we noticed that there was someone who brought it to his attention. Your father has made an oath that no one was to eat anything until he be avenged of his enemies, and yet you have disobeyed the oath, or at least you have failed to observe it. In his response, he accused his father of acting somewhat foolishly, and how much better it would have been if, in fact, the troops had been well-nourished and they could even have had a much larger victory over the Philistines. But be that as it may, we notice that chapter number 14 rolls forward, and in the scene of events, we find again that God was with the children of Israel and they did enjoy a tremendous victory over the Philistines. That victory is highlighted as you come to the closing verses of that chapter. We find that Saul, in fact, enjoyed victory over many of the enemies of Israel, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, even the Amalekites and others. And as all of that was enjoyed, we find that those who were a part of the very administration of Saul are listed with some great care. At that point, as you can see, the 14th chapter draws to its conclusion, and that takes us to the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel. In chapter 15, we notice that the God of heaven expressly commissioned, by way of Samuel, Saul in a particular way. In fact, these words are stated, and I would invite you to read them with me. Verse number 3 of 1 Samuel 15 reads, Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And although the statement is very direct and straightforward, we notice that through Samuel God had a very specific matter in mind. He wanted the Amalekites utterly destroyed completely, in fact, removed. He had commissioned Saul to carry out that particular work. We notice that Saul amasses his troops. Some 200,000 are gathered at Tilaim, somewhat more from the tribe of Judah, and off they go to do battle with these Amalekites. As the battle ensues, we notice that a bit of preparation was made first. Saul, in fact, made contact with the Kenites and had them, in fact, to remove themselves or depart because they weren't the ones that God had said to attack. God had said to battle the Amalekites. We notice beginning in the next verses of chapter 15 that the battle did proceed and the children of Israel did slay and slaughter a large host of the Amalekites. However, they did save King Agag alive, the king of the Amalekites, and furthermore, they also saved the very best of the animals with the intent to offer them a sacrifice unto God. In summary, thus, we notice that God said to utterly destroy them, but Saul and the people saved one person, namely the king, and also the very best of the animals with the intent to bring them back to sacrifice. At this point, we then notice Information was relayed to to, to Samuel about the events of what had happened. And the text is very interesting in that it reads, Saul was grieved, or rather Samuel was grieved and he cried all night. What Saul had done and what the people had done greatly weighed upon his heart. He was greatly saddened, very grieved by it. And the next morning when Saul and the troops in fact returned and he was able to make contact with them, we find an interesting conversation developed. The very first words out of Saul's mouth were these. I'd invite you to read a few selected passages. In chapter 15, verse number 13, these were the first words out of Saul's mouth upon returning. "'Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord.'" Saul initially stated, It seems with a great deal of excitement and eagerness that I have done what God commanded to be done. I have obeyed His commandment. The very next question from the lips of Samuel were these. Verse number 14, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul, if indeed you have kept that commandment of God, how can it be that I hear the oxen and the sheep which I do? The conversation proceeded. You'll notice verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them. He took the opportunity to try to shift a bit of the responsibility to the children of Israel. They have brought them back and the sole express purpose has been so that we may offer a sacrifice unto God. At that point, Samuel then said, Stay and let me speak to the Lord. And in the response of the God of heaven's commandment, verses 17 and 18 basically can be paraphrased as follows. Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, and I gave you these commandments, was not I the one that lifted you to the placement of the kingship? But now it says, I gave you the commandment. And verse 19 says, Thou didst not obey the voice of the Lord. Saul was directly accused of disobedience. He was directly asserted and declared to have failed to do that which the God of heaven commanded. And we notice in the verses that follow, verse number 20, Saul in reply says, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. He still maintained an integrity and a sense of obedience. Ultimately, in verse number 22, Samuel drops the following statement in such thundering profoundness. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. We ultimately see that in verse number 24, Saul confessed, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And then eventually Saul admitted what took place. I gave in to the people. I have sinned. I listened to what they said. In the verses that follow is certainly one of the saddest in all the book of 1 Samuel. We finally have Saul recognizing what had been taken from him. And we have Saul understanding the depths to which he had fallen. And also the punishment that was now going to be his. As a result, we have him pleading with Samuel, Please approach God on my behalf. He begs him. And in fact, when Samuel turns to go away, Saul is so overcome with desire, he even in earnestness takes the garment that in fact Samuel was wearing and it actually rips because he wants him to remain and to try to make things right one more time. As the chapter closes, we read that from from that time forward, Samuel and Saul really had no association. They lived apart because Saul had disobeyed the Lord and the punishment that the kingdom would be rent from him was now virtually and completely settled. It is with that rather sad statement that chapter 15 closes, only preparing us for what the next saga will be. It seems natural the next question will be who will the next king be and of what character shall he be, and how will he be selected? We'll take that lesson up next time, but for now, what are some things from these two chapters that might be helpful to you and to me to ponder some of the lessons that we have in fact seen? The first lesson might well be this one. We have already seen in the 14th chapter of this book of First Samuel, that here the Philistines perhaps prepared so nobly and prepared so well. After all, we did see that there was no blacksmith amongst the children of Israel, but there were many of them amongst the Philistines. One would have to believe that the Philistines were very prepared militarily. They were far better prepared in terms not only of the armaments available, but the ammunition, the character of all of that. And yet we find in this 14th chapter... Despite that fact, God's people won. The children of Israel, in fact, seemingly didn't have to fight nearly as much as would have been expected because due to the working of God and the miraculous nature of His benefit, the Philistines defeated themselves. They beat one another down. I would submit to you that that's an interesting point that helps us take a great deal of comfort and a great deal of solace as we contemplate our standing before the God of heaven. Think about some of these verses in which the promises of God are shed forth so abundantly upon those who are His people. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. The marvelous reminder of Psalm fifty-five twenty-two. Is that a passage that can be of great helpfulness to you and me? The fact that as His own, we too are those that can beseech Him as our Father. Galatians 4, verses 5 and 6. And because of that, appreciate that we can lay our burdens upon the one whose shoulders are far strong enough to handle them. First Peter 5, 7 reads it like this. Casting your burdens upon Him, for He careth for you. We notice that little minor prophet Nahum. In Nahum 1, verse number 7, he said, "...the Lord knoweth those that are His." We can rest assured, God knows absolutely and identically those that belong to Him. And He has given great promise to the sacred scriptures to not only be aware of who that is, but to be there as an ever-present help in every time of need, Psalm 46, 1. You can also notice that that passage in Nahum is quoted almost verbatim in 2 Timothy 2, 19 where there the inspired apostle, the great penman Paul, applies it to you and to me. This promise standeth sure that the Lord knoweth those that are His own. To those that are faithful Christians, we are special and blessed people because of our association to the perfect, almighty God of heaven. In His magnitude and in His greatness, there is nothing too strong for Him. Didn't Jesus make a statement along that line in Matthew 19, 26? There is nothing too great or mighty for Him. It is in light of a passage like that one. It challenges us to appreciate the greatness of Psalm 37, verses 39 and 40. When it speaks of the righteous on that occasion, it is there stated that they can rest in such a noble and pleasant position because God fights for them and because they can appreciate the honor and wonder of being His servant. I would submit to you that as we merely think about that, it does take us to a second lesson. This second lesson is perhaps the highlight section of these two chapters, at least as we think about almost innumerable sermons preached from it over the years. I would invite you to reflect with me for a moment about Saul. Here was one. This very handsome, strapping young man, who in fact, as we've described before, was a very pleasant person to look at apparently, very attractive. He seemingly had everything going for him. But we find in this chapter, he disobeyed what God said. God said to go and destroy the Amalekites. In fact, God was even specific enough to say, animals, people, women, and children alike, it made no difference And that, of course, included the king. We notice that Saul, however, hearkened unto the voice of the people. But despite that fact, twice he claimed to have obeyed what God said. I have kept the commandment of the Lord, he said. And later, even after being challenged, he still claimed, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verses 13 and 20 of 1 Samuel 15 As you and I think about that, consider the following observation. I've simply entitled it personal delusion. It would seem that Saul honestly failed. He thoroughly believed. He was convinced of the fact that he had obeyed what God said. True enough, he had destroyed thousands, no doubt, but left one alive. At least of people, and that was Agag. Agag. He had destroyed many, many animals, but left some alive. He was under the perception and delusion that he, by that nature of destruction, had perhaps done sufficient enough to have been accounted to have obeyed what God said. Samuel, however, said, You have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. I hear the bleeding of these animals. I hear the lowing of the oxen. And what about Agag? Doesn't that challenge us time and again to appreciate how easy it is to justify our actions? I know what this book says, but my circumstances justify me acting this way. My circumstances are so hard. Surely God understands. I think we each can see how dangerous that mentality is. When it came to the Amalekites, and when it came to God's commandment to Saul, God had said what He meant, and He had meant what He said. There was no justification of other things. There was no finding a plan B. There was no alteration or modification to be made. That particular lesson is not only one found here, but found in so many other places. Some of the verses that you'll see near the bottom of that slide, challenge us, perhaps very interestingly, to note this warning. In the closing chapter of the Galatian letter, Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, the same gentleman that we referenced earlier, Paul, there said, "...be not deceived." That immediately tells us it's possible to be deceived. That immediately forewarns us that what is about to be uttered is a strong and powerful warning. It is possible for you and for me and for the human family to be deceived." Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. In the final analysis, does it really matter what the reasoning was as to why Saul disobeyed? He eventually admitted, I heard the voice of the people and I followed what they had to say. But in the final analysis, he disobeyed. And in so doing, as Samuel pronounced upon him, the kingdom has been taken from you. He lost the kingship. This was the final nail in the coffin of his reign. It would be taken from him and given to one better than he. Given to one more righteous, more noble, less stubborn, and more interested in doing the commandment of God. Today, ponder The sad fate and saga about some who perhaps approach the time of their death and even leave this life still thinking, I have kept the commandment of God only to meet Him in judgment and hear Him say, You have disobeyed what I said. You have not kept my commandment. And he begins to list several passages, perhaps even quoting them. What possible answer would the person have? It'll do no good to say, I thought... It will avail nothing to say, I considered. It will do nothing to say, but I perceived. All that will matter is, did we keep what this book says? Nothing else will make any difference. Saul learned that God's Word is irrefutable. Saul learned that God's Word cannot be taken back, altered and changed. We are told the children of Israel were reminded of this fact in Deuteronomy chapters 4 and 12. God's Word doesn't change. Ye shall not add thereto nor subtract aught from it. The book of Revelation closes with one final warning to the same. Thus, as we think about the Word of God, no wonder it's so special. For this is the very Word that should be opened at judgment, and your life and mine will be judged according to what this book is taught. May we think very seriously and urgently about the mistake that Saul made because in principle we easily could make the same. The delusion that we see in Saul only reminds us maybe of one other episode in this same situation. Lesson number three. In the opening verses of 1 Samuel 15, we read something very intriguing. I would invite you to read the second verse of that chapter with me. 1 Samuel 15, 2. As he gave the order and the commissioning to Saul to destroy the Amalekites, this was the reasoning that God gave. I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek. The God of heaven made recollection of an event that occurred well over 400 years earlier. Over four centuries had passed and God said, Go and destroy the Amalekites for this is how they behaved when my people, the children of Israel, came out of Egypt. And they had the nerve to attack them from behind, as recorded in Exodus 17. They had the nerve to in fact defeat those that were weak and those that were unable to protect themselves. God said, you go now and destroy the Amalekites. Doesn't that speak volumes about the memory of God? Four centuries had elapsed, and now the time was ripe for God to take vengeance upon this people that had acted so improperly and who had acted so inappropriately. May you and I never forget the perfectness of God's memory. If you and I are guilty of sin, rest assured that it will maintain until the day of judgment unless it is forgiven. That's the only way it can be taken care of. God won't just forget it. He won't just overlook it. His memory is perfect. Thanks be unto God for the blood of Jesus Christ that allows that sin to completely be forgiven so that it will never be held against you and me again. The slate of God's memory is wiped perfectly clean and the blood of Jesus Christ is the wonderful eraser. It will wipe away the sins of my life and yours and they shall never reappear. When God forgives and when He forgets, His forgiveness is perfect and so is His memory. Sad to say, sometimes your memory and mine is far from perfect. We may forget and we may overlook and we may in fact look upon things incorrectly, but God does not behave so. I suspect that the Amalekites, at least in part, were reminded of the perfectness of God's memory. And may you and I today also give thought to how greatly that lesson is taught to us. Speaking about forgiveness of sin, doesn't Psalm 103 verse number 12 put it in language like this, As far as the east is from the west, has He removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. No wonder we need to rely upon that forgiveness And never simply assume that God forgets because He doesn't. The perfectness of God is highlighted in so many ways and His memory is just one of the things that occupy our attention and could do so for hours on end. When you think about the nature of His memory and His perfectness, notice with me that statement of 1 John 1 verse 7. That seems to be so beautiful in His presentation. We read on that occasion about the greatness of God's forgiveness as the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, we can rest assured of that truth. You'll notice it doesn't say that it's just overlooked, but it's cleansed. Thanks be to God for the blood of Christ. That unspeakable gift that God made on our behalf so that you and I could have not just a forgetting of it, but a forgiveness of it. The loving forgiveness of our God in heaven. It is with that in mind that we do appreciate that fourth and final lesson of our time tonight. So far as we've looked at the escapades and the episodes about Saul's life, perhaps one more thing, the reaction to sin. Isn't it shocking to see the contrast in this chapter? On the one hand, we have Saul, who even though he was chastised twice, he still didn't appreciate the enormity of his disobedience. Standing in contrast to him is Samuel, who cried all night long because of what Saul had done. It was Samuel who grieved over sin when you'd think it might have been Saul. But all the while, Samuel understood the enormity of the foolishness of what Saul had done. And again, the text informs us that it was he who grieved and cried all night. I might ask, isn't it still that way today? The righteous are the ones that are grieved because of sin. Those that are unrighteous in many cases don't care. And often they don't understand. But those who understand the majesty and love and perfectness of God, it's they who cry because they see sin in their life or the lives of others. It's they who are moved to action. And it's they who are overwhelmed with tears. Those who are unrighteous often at the very least, again, fail to appreciate what sin is, And even if they do, they often don't even care. How sad. Because we are told, aren't we, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, my friend, what will it be for you and me? Does it break our heart to realize sin? Or do we not care? Our society so often parades what's ungodly, parades what's filled with in- iniquity and sin. And it's clear that they don't understand in many ways what the Bible declares, and if they have been brought to the attention of it, they honestly don't care because they want to do other things. However, we know it breaks the heart of those that are righteous because we know that it puts those individuals in line for a devil's hell And it puts them in position opposite the love and grace of God because in their current state, they have forfeited the salvation offered through the Master. And that's a tragedy. Samuel was the one that was grieved. Do you and I grieve over sin? Does it break our heart when we realize it in our life? Or do we try to act proudly like Saul did and pretend that it's not that big a matter? Sin is that big a matter. It will doom my soul or yours if we're guilty of it. We must rely upon God's forgiveness and only in that way can we appreciate the enormity of why Saul was unable to enjoy fellowship with Samuel. Samuel said, we cannot enjoy fellowship. You have disobeyed the Lord, but I honor what God has said. Do you and I? then try to have fellowship so often with those of worldly character and try to lift their hands high when so often they adamantly refuse to submit to the things God has declared. There comes a time when we too must shake the dust off our feet and to understand that those that will not accept the teaching of the Word of God are those with whom we can't enjoy fellowship like we would enjoy otherwise. Samuel, as he taught that lesson to Saul, This book will go on to bring that back to bear many times in the future. Ultimately, even in the 28th chapter, which is after our youngsters have finished their study, we'll find even one final time that Saul wanted the association of Samuel. But it is with all that in mind we close our lesson tonight, and we do so rehearsing it in the following way. We've studied two more chapters in which the episodes of Saul have primarily been the matters before us. We did see Jonathan's enjoyable success against the Philistines and we also saw that was primarily because of God. God's fact that he was with his people. The 15th chapter has been all about Saul's disobedience. He did not do what God said to do and he had no excuses. Today, you and I have no excuse either. We have been blessed to having heard this book. We have been blessed with being near it, in an area where it's been preached. We've seen it lived in the lives of those round about us. We've had the privilege of listening to it proclaimed in Bible classes and taught from pulpits. The Word of the Lord has come our way, and for that we should be forever thankful. But that Word does come with obligation. Have you and I, like Saul, refused to obey it? Or have we, with tenderness of heart, yearned to strive to bring our lives into compliance with it? Tonight, if you are not a faithful member of the body of Christ, don't remain aloof from the salvation that God has to offer. Don't remain at a distance, but come with desirable interest and loving heart to what God has said. The plan of salvation reads as follows. You need to hear not only what God has said, but to believe Him to be the Son of God. Believe Jesus to be the very Messiah, the Anointed One, who came to save you and me from sin. In the reality of that belief, repent of the sins in your life, realizing that they have separated you from the God that loves you and from Jesus, the Son, who came to die for you. As you appreciate that fact, the matter of confession should be an easy thing. To affirm that I believe Jesus Christ to be the Son of God and do so with all my heart. At that point, baptism then puts you in contact with the saving blood of Christ and allows you to be ushered into the church because Christ adds you to it. Acts 2 verse 47. If we could assist one or more tonight in the accomplishment of that, what a lovely thing for you this day it would be. If you, though, have become a member of that body at some former day, but at this very moment, you've allowed some of the mistakes of Saul to become your own. You have acted with a degree of disobedience, and yet you've pretended that things are well and fine. We often sing a song, is it well with your soul? May we each be honest about that. Don't try to cover up anything because God knows the truth. In the final analysis, we here in the building might be fooled, but God won't be. His memory is perfect and so is His knowledge. And if you need to make things right between you and your God tonight, come back to your first love. Let us pray for you and with you. Let us approach God on your behalf so that you could be forgiven of what stands between you and Him. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you in either of those ways, Brother Trail has chosen this song of encouragement, and we'd be happy to assist you while together we stand and while we sing.